I'm Başak Etkin. Hi, I'm Kostya Garabets. Welcome to Borderline Jurisprudence. The question of meaning is no less important for international law than that of sources. It is not only necessary to know where to find the law, but also to advance claims as to its content and meaning. This makes the semantic perspective of international law crucially important. And our today's guest, Dr. Ingo Venske, professor of public international law at the University of Amsterdam, is one of the leading scholars on legal semantics and semantic authority in international law. Professor Venske, welcome to Borderline Jurisprudence. Yeah, um, thank you so much, Kostya and Bashak. Thanks for having me. It's a great uh, privilege and honor to be part of your podcast series. Our yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining. Uh, so in international legal academia, your name strongly associates with the ideas of normative semantics and semantic authority. So while we will come back to the concept of uh, semantic authority later, what is semantics? And most importantly, most importantly, why is semantics? What does it have to do with international law? And what can it show us? Yeah, it's a great question to, to start off on. Semantics, I take to be that branch of linguistics that is concerned with meaning. So what does something, or more specifically, what does a word mean? And I think both in theory and practice, international law is deeply vested in that question of meaning. So what does the practice of interpretation, what is it all about? I would say it's about an exchange, perhaps a struggle about what the law means, about how to support claims about what it means. That's what semantics is about. And it is against that background that I describe that practice of interpretation in law, in international law, as a semantic struggle, uh, a struggle to find recognition for a certain claim about what the law, the norm, the custom, what it means. And speaking about semantics, um, to, to denote that to struggle, that interpretive practice allows me to connect that inquiry into interpretive practice to insights from linguistics and language philosophy. So it has to do more with the content then of the law rather than with the phenomenon or the concept of international law, if I understand you correctly. That's correct. So it's about yeah the meaning uh, most straightforwardly of, uh, of words, of textual manifestations, but it could also be of uh, yeah, other, other signs or so. And um, it's connected to questions of finding uh, or, or justifying claims about what the law is, both if you have a shared reference point, so if you all agree that it's about the interpretation of this word of that norm, but um, on the second order also in claims about the way to look. Huh? Um, so the sources of the law are also, um, take also the form of, of rules that need to be interpreted, just like the rules of interpretations as well. So in a way, there's no escaping from, from interpretation. Um, you have a great 2012 book called How Interpretation Makes International Law on Semantic Change and Normative Twists, on which I will be heavily relying for my dissertation. Um, and there's a very short citation at the opening of, of the book. It's almost hidden and therefore easy to miss, but it's also quite proactive. So, well, at least it provoked me. Those who know me will say, oh, you're provoked because it's by Kelsen. 
um, but I, I promise you that it's not because of that. Uh, it says, uh, kein imperativ ohne imperator in German, which means no imperative without an imperator or maybe emperor, um, more naturally in English, from his posthumous general theory of norms. Um, you do return to this quote in the book to give it a bit more context, but could you tell us a bit what, you, what it means or what you meant by it? Yeah, great. Um, uh, Bashak, I'm afraid I have to perhaps provoke you a little further <laughs> um, because I chose that opening quote uh, in tribute to, to Kelsen also as one of my private heroes. Yeah, um, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I do that also with a view to the fact that um, I want to, in this book and elsewhere, to some extent, rescue Kelsen and perhaps legal positivism more generally from some false accusations that I see pop up every now and then. So I continue to read more often than I would like that legal positivism and Kelsen believes in the determinacy of legal rules, uh, or even where sometimes yeah, that this view is attributed to, to Kelsen. And I don't see it. So Kelsen was adamant about the fact that legal interpretation, at least in concrete cases, rests on a choice. Interpretations for Kelsen are not legally determined. So his point, I, how I read him, was that the justification of legal interpretations must stick to the law rather than considerations of morality, for instance, or other kind of um, normative orders. Why? Why did he make that claim that in justifying legal interpretations, claims about the law, you should stick well to the law? Not because the law would give away, give away the answer, I think, but because such confined discourse would be less likely to be usurped by the powerful. Uh, um, if it was opened up, the powerful could bend the law much more to their views. They could invoke standards of morality to their advantage. So he saw a possibility of a degree of greater objectivity in the law than in other normative orders. For him, and as well for me, formalism is a project to curb the exercise of power. It's all about what the interpreter can and cannot do, not about the determinacy of legal rules first and foremost. And I love the quote because it makes that so crystal clear. So contrary to what Kelsen or formalists are sometimes said to believe, so the, the, the imperatives do not have a meaning of their own. They have meanings attributed to them, given to them. And it is just a slight exaggeration to say that an imperative means what the emperor says it means. It's just a, but it's an exaggeration in the right direction, I think. It shifts emphasis from the imperative to whoever interprets. And that's a very powerful move because it focuses the attention where it should be on the interpreter. Um, it's an exaggeration because there is never a single interpreter, one emperor, not in international law and not even in an empire, by the way. So if there is not only one, who are, I was going to ask who is this imperator, but then who are these uh, emperors in international law? Yeah, so that depends um, on, uh, on the specific regimes, on the specific context. In the book that you mentioned, on how interpretation makes international law, I look at um, two kinds 
uh, of actors and uh, within their kind more specifically. So there's, there's international courts and tribunals in one example. And there I look at um, the uh, general agreement on tariffs and trade regime and then the World Trade Organization and how their panels and appellate bodies have been very significant actors in shaping the law through their interpretations. And in the second example, there's the regime of refugee law, where I look at the international bureaucracy, the UNHCR, High Commission for Refugees, and their contributions, uh, their claims about uh, refugee law. Um, I see many regimes in international law, uh, at least uh, some <laughs> that are strongly judicialized. And in later work, I have therefore focused on international courts and tribunals, if you stick to that image as emperors in international law, because they have such a strong weight in the legal um, discourse. Um, and this question, uh, so actually who is the emperor or whose interpretations matter? That's what the concept uh, of semantic authority is about. So it tries to capture the relative or particular weight of an actor in the semantic struggle about the law. Yeah, so on, on this concept of semantic authority, it is, of course, one of the key focuses of your scholarship and how the semantic authority also relates to sources of international law and even international legal normativity, generally speaking. So you already gave us this basic definition of what semantic authority is, but how it relates to more conventional forms of authority elaborated, for instance, by Joseph Ross, like practical authority and epistemic authority. So is semantic authority something in between or is it different from both of them? Yes. Um, so I just realized how very conventional, so how very context specific um, it is what counts as conventional. So yes. I <laughs> understood uh, Joseph Rass and analytical jurisprudence more generally to be in a slightly different business when compared to what motivates me. So I take his business um, and his conceptions of authority to be about reason giving force. Huh? So what are the reasons that uh, somebody has for doing something or to deferring their judgment. Um, for instance, deferring the judgment to, to the law. What's the legal authority as interpreted by a court or otherwise in relation to what uh, I should or shouldn't do and what I'm justified in doing or not doing. And then there are different reasons huh, for why the law uh, could have such a claim over me. There's the service conception, there's particular authority of particular actors the epistemic authority of a doctor and so on and so forth. So my point I think is a, is a different one. It's related, but it's different. I understand semantic authority as an actor's capacity, justified or not, to establish their claims about the law as a reference point for legal discourse that others can hardly escape. Now, once more, it's the capacity, whether it's justified or not, to establish reference points for later legal discourse that others can hardly escape. So the questions of whose claims are justified and who has that capacity are related in the long run, but only but whether it's justified is only for me the question of a secondary nature. 
semantic authority is first and foremost a factual capacity? Um, so uh, I'll jump in because uh, Kostya is a big fan of Raz, and uh, if we let him start on that track, we will never be able to stop. Um, but to go back to, not to go back, but to continue on this uh, journey on uh, semantic authority, um, you draw inspiration among others uh, in uh, Rudolf von Jering's and work and his idea of struggle for law. And you argue that in the interpretative practice of international law, various actors try to pull the law onto their side in an argumentative fashion and compete to ensure that it is their view uh, of the content and the meaning of the law that sticks. This sounds both apologetic because it empowers states' authority to bend the law, but also liberating because it assumes that all sorts of actors, not only states, have a threat to pull in this battle over the normative fabric of international law. So what exactly is the struggle? What does it look like in international law? Yeah, so here I wanted to take, take a step back. So it's um, in the sense that I, uh, of course, um, would not want this account to be neither apologetic liberating I could live with, but I, wonder if there's not a conflation of, of description and normative proposition. At least I would not want to make the normative uh, proposition that um, because uh, this, I described the semantic struggle as one where all actors, states and others try to pull the law into their side, that that's what they should and what they, what they can do. So I, I do think that the two spheres of description and normative proposition are quite quite closely linked and much more so than is often acknowledged. So there's for instance also a long-standing question of whether saying that something is indeterminate, that the law is indeterminate, makes it more indeterminate um, than the fish was for instance of the opinion that uh, it would not have no effect on the law whatsoever to say that it's indeterminate. I'm inclined to think that there might be such an effect, but um, still the, the descriptive account that this is what's going on uh, doesn't per se or doesn't easily lead to states increased possibilities or even their the increased authority to also do so. Yeah. Um, having said that, I do wonder whether, you know, what the possible effects of such descriptive accounts may be on lawmaking. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, for one thing, I'm uh, thinking that my account would not be influential enough to have a strong effect on the sociology of lawmaking. But, um, but if anything, I would think that describing the semantic authority of particular actors, states um, and, and others, international courts, uh, tribunals, bureaucracies, NGOs, ICRC, Perhaps some uh, individual scholars or community of scholars, the ILC, the ILA, um, or so on, um, that that descriptive account of their semantic authority has, if anything, a negative effect, I would think, on their capacity to, uh, to, to make the law. So it may be that, for instance, judicial lawmaking um, is most effective precisely when it is not seen as such. 
Mm. Now, you know, that the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince the people that he doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think something similar might be happening here. Hmm. Um, this idea of struggle is also the focus of the um, recent volume you co-edited, which is called Contingency in, in International Law. Uh, so to make the parallel with this struggle, um, who's winning the battle of contingencies? Or can there be no winner, maybe? Yeah, so the, the, the contingency book um, tries to tackle the question that, you know, maybe may be obvious. So we're talking about, in a way, positive law, positive in the sense of, yeah, uh, made law set by states, developed by other actors, and so on and so forth. And one could say then that the answer is quite obvious to whether the law could be different by saying, yeah, of course they could make it differently. And uh, now connecting to the thread uh, that we've been discussing, uh, exchanging about is the um, lawmaking by way of interpretation. Uh, the answer could also be obvious to say that, well, of course interpretations could have been different. But then the question is in the, in the long run, right? So whose interpretations uh, end up being consequential and is it not that structures um, of power, culture, um, uh, economic balances uh, uh, catch up in the long run in a way, right? So if an interpretation now could be different, well, doesn't any diff uh, any would it would it leave a would it bend the path of international law, so to speak? And you have several chapters that uh, make the following kind of move to say, yeah, well, here there was a moment of possibility. It could have the interpretation or also a choice to make uh, a political legislative choice could have been different, but then something like because the underlying political economy is the way it is, uh, the law would end up um, on its on the path as, as we know it. Um, and I think uh, uh, there, uh, these claims have, have a strong uh, degree, a high degree of plausibility, but they might just cut short um, the extent to which those conditions of political economy or otherwise are also co-produced by legal arrangements on the one hand, and um, they might just overstate uh, the determinacy of those uh, underlying structures. Uh, oftentimes also something like neoliberalism uh, it's, you know, transient in its operation, but oftentimes not so clear what it requires from the law. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting how you picture this semantic uh, authority in the context also of international lawmaking, uh, that it is not so much a matter of the recognized sources of international law alone, but that it sort of unfolds in this communicative practice of its everyday operation. And so there is this interesting move that you make of shifting the loki of the international legal normativity from the sources of law to the these interpretative practices and communities. And mm -hmm. that, by the way, resonates uh, nicely with uh, Harlan Cohen's idea, who was our guest uh, in the podcast a couple of episodes ago. So as I understand you, the idea here is that the content and the authoritative meaning of the law is never sort of given up front and only becomes tangible in the context of the interpretative practices. So my question is then, you know, like asking for a friend, as they say, because this is the topic of my <laughs> dissertation. Uh, 
whether this image leaves anything to the norms themselves. Do, do they not have any authority of their own, like prior to this kind of battle and struggle of engagements? Yeah, it's a great question, Kostya. So um, there's, there's, there's a short answer with a, with a twist, I would say, uh, no, they do. But the question is, how do you make it stick? Uh, so hmm. how do you, so first of all, I think it's a matter of degree. Uh, so sometimes they, they, they don't, or they almost don't. And sometimes they, they have a greater degree of such, yeah, normativity or autonomy. Have to be, be a bit careful with those concepts. So I think they can mean quite similar things in this uh, specific context. Um, the question is how to make it make it stick. Um, so I, I think that it is the case that they generally, or more often than not, have that degree of, of normativity. Not everything can be made of the norms because they are socially embedded, not because the um, meaning is uh, somehow inscribed, connected to them. Yeah, as though you could hold the norm against the light and look really hard what's behind it what's in it what's under it or so right so that's uh that's uh, gone so that's what i tried also to get through the concept of semantic authority yeah? um, buying into insights from linguistics and philosophy of language not to gain a grounding on how to interpret but uh to to see what kind of you know what claims fly about way to locate meaning and which claims would have a harder, harder um, battle to fight uh, and, and also in that, in that, uh, in those disciplines. And what I get from those disciplines, yeah, um, as, as with most exercises of interdisciplinarity, it's not that I find the grounding there, you know, when you look, you, you, you find that everything is just as contested there as it is in law. But what I, what I take from, from, that, uh, from those disciplines of linguistics and philosophy of language is a understanding um, that, that first, further helps and to elaborate how that normativity, that normativity is socially embedded and how you can make uh, uh, stick in a way and the approach that I um, adopt rather freely to think through the practice of interpretation as something that is both creative and constrained is one of inferential semantics. That is um, a view developed especially by Robert Brandom and his much wider philosophy. It's a view according to which an interpreter is tied back to a norm she interprets by interpreters yet to come. Yeah? So it's the future interpreters that will judge whether an interpretation in the present is correct in the sense of, by the standards of seeing how it would fit with what had happened in the past. Yeah, so th that sounds rather similar to Ronald Dworkin's idea of constructive interpretation, right? With just with a with a, with a yeah. twist of this competing interpretation, right? Because he has this one one right answer thesis. Uh, here, it's more more dispersed. Yeah. So, how how would Dworkin fit into this uh, picture? How do you think? Yeah. No, so he's um, I, I certainly see uh, and, and recognize that parts of the idea and even some of the vocabulary. They just used to resonate with with Dworkin's jurisprudence, the notion of uh, fit, for instance, and yeah. he's been quite quite influential, right? So, in, in wonderful writing, or in the early eighties, of laws and interpretive practice, uh, a great text and great contribution. 
but here I would come back to my uh, siding with Kelsen at the outside. And I think that we can gain orientation um, from injustice uh, and what we should do as scholars, or perhaps even how we should interpret some laws. But the letter is already tricky because I do not think that there is a political morality that can guide interpretations. Uh, and with Kelsen, I'm skeptical about the practical effects of invoking such a political morality. Uh, so I'm afraid that it would open up uh, the power constraining potential that legal argumentation as a practice may have. And I'm afraid that Dworkin's late text on the philosophy of international law corroborates those, those concerns. Yeah? So yeah. What, we, what do we gain from a practical morality that roughly sets the UN principles as guiding stars to our claims uh, and actions and interpretations? I don't only think that those principles are notoriously contradictory, but as Carr put it with Bacon, they are also guiding stars that give little light just because they're so high. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a wonderful metaphor. So if I understand you correctly, it is not as such a matter of the authority of norms, but what exactly do they mean that, that, makes, that makes a difference, that is important? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, short answer, yes. Yes, I, I, I think that's, that's, that's spot on, yeah. Um, so I understood your question about the authority of these norms as one of um, whether they have a, a, a capacity to constrain, no? whether, so yeah. I translated it as circling in on the uh, omnipresent indeterminacy thesis. No? Is, yeah. is that, was that a fair reading? Yes, yes. Well, not only to constrain, but also to, to, to guide, to empower. Yes. Yeah, norms don't only yeah. constrain, no. of course. No, perfect. Yeah, no, fully agree. So it's, it's enabling, it's, it's shaping, it's guiding. Exactly. No, yeah. it's very important. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, I, it was more of a question for myself, you know, that's just to clarify your position than for the podcast, but maybe we can... Uh... Yeah, but I think there's a snippet that, 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 that's, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it, it may even suggest that it's a you know, um, exercise of thinking together, which is yeah, right. I love it when we finish on a note where everybody agrees. Yes. Yeah, then something must have gone awfully wrong. <laughs> well, no, Bashak is being modest, of course, because uh, how how can she agree when Kelsen was mentioned so many times already? Obviously, obviously. <laughs> well, that's after 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 the cut. I want to hear more about Bashak's with Kelsen. <laughs> This brings us to the speed round. And uh, as always, our first question, uh, what drives you to do what you do, academically speaking? Yeah, what drives me? So I think one thing is the liberty and the ability to think things through. So not to stop asking why, especially in the face of overwhelming injustice. Hmm. So I like to see myself, I'm not sure that always holds true, but I like it at least in the role of an unpopular critic drawing attention to inconvenient facts, as Max Weber put it. Secondly, uh, what is something you struggle with? Yeah, so I just said that I like to think of myself as that uh, critic who draws attention to inconvenient facts. That's a yeah, noble vocation of science. It's also aspirational, I hope it's true, but what do I really know about myself, right? So I think another driver which matters for many scholars um, more than it should or more than it's acknowledged and I probably cannot really exclude myself here is a certain degree of vanity <laughs> and I mention that because in introspection I think that it leads to one thing that I'm struggling with 
and perhaps um, the discipline struggles with that more generally. And that is the way in which recognition or appreciation is dealt and distributed. And I could not immediately pin down how such recognition and appreciation is dealt. And it is certainly dealt in more than one way by different people, different institutions, and so on and so forth. But my sense is that um, in international law, there's a premium on practice. And increasingly in university politics, there's a tangible uh, societal relevance as a, as, a, um, as a premium. And I think that both these markers, practice and societal relevance, are not wrong per se, but they're questionable. And the way I see the conditions of knowledge production may then in fact go against what I hope drives me, uh, that idea of criticism in face of injustice, which is difficult to square with premiums on practice and um, tangible societal relevance. And the second related similar struggle is with time, uh, which always seems to slip through my fingers. And I'm afraid that that feeling is so common that I don't really need to elaborate here. Yeah, yeah it's, it's already Thursdays. <laughs> How did that happen? How could that happen, right? <laughs> and also on your first point, we ha have a podcast on theory of international law. So practically or societal uh, relevance wise, we, <laughs> we don't, uh, yeah. yeah. We, we, we don't score any points. <laughs> no, no points at all for us. No, we don't score any points at all. And last but not least, obviously, what is a book or an article that you would suggest everyone read? Yeah, that's honestly the hardest question for me. Um, you know, we can discuss Ross and Dworkin and everything, <laughs> but, you know, recommending one and only one book. So there's been quite some work that's been usually influential on me, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend everyone to engage with it. Well, I guess I don't need to explain the difficulty of this question much longer, but so my choice then is, it's a book that I only read once, but which was still very important for me, if only because it undid a little bit of my ignorance. And that's um, the book I think international lawyers should read by Mohammed Bijawi, uh, his 1979 book towards the new international economic order. That title is fitting, but it's much more than that. Yeah? It doesn't quite do justice to the book. It's really a book, something like a general course of international. It's wide, it's deep, it's crisp, and has a grasp on the political economy of international law that is, I think, as timely as ever. It was a, it was a great read. I think I only read it a couple of years ago, yeah, four or five years ago, far too late. And, um, and it is, yeah, it's just a great read. Great. A great Very suggestion. curious. Yeah, very curious to read it also. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, thank you Profes so much. Professor Ingo Wenske, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks so much for the great questions, Kasia and, and Pashak. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, looking Thanks. forward to the next episodes. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.